United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We have a thought-provoking show for you today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back. And I want to begin with a huge thank you to all of you. We have had tremendous success with this show. And in just two months, we were ranked in the top 50 nature category podcasts in five different countries and top 10 in three of them. Here in the U.S., we're ranked 49th in Japan, 12th in France, 9th. In Australia, we've been ranked 7th. And in Croatia, we were recently ranked the number one podcast in the nature category. Sure, we fully acknowledge there are a lot of categories out there, but we are still proud here at South of Two Degrees. And it's a direct result of you and you spreading the word about the show. So thank you. Today's show has an interesting genesis. We've had several requests to cover some anthropogenic climate change mitigation systems in addition to our usual studies, and one listener sent in an article that recently ran in Popular Mechanics on a Project Vesta and wanted to know our take and if we could break down the science behind it. Now, we're intrigued by the idea, but before we do, I want to say that neither Popular Mechanics nor Project Vesta have any investment sponsorship or endorsements of this show, nor us of them. Just mentioning them is a path to the scientific papers we analyzed this week. While last week, I asked you to imagine it was 2015, this week, Just imagine you aren't on COVID-19 lockdown and that you're off to a tropical vacation in the Caribbean. Man, that sounds nice, doesn't it? While out walking around, you stumble across a curious sight, a completely green beach. Not green from algae or seaweed, but rather a curious green sand. Now, you've heard of the black sand beaches of Hawaii, maybe the crystal white sands of the Whitsunday Islands in Australia. And if you're extremely lucky, maybe you've heard of a pinkish sand beach in Diego Garcia. Green, though, completely new and unexpected. What you've inadvertently stumbled across is a real-world experiment to combat anthropogenic climate change by Project Vesta. The theory they're testing is the feasibility of using enhanced weathering of rocks to capture CO2 from the atmosphere. And they're making use of a mineral called olivine. Before you say, huh? No, we're going to dive into it. Now, in full disclosure, Project Vesta cites 30 years of research to back up the process, but in evaluating some of the cited papers, we found that they were either dated or not peer-reviewed. One was even done exclusively in a beaker. Since we deal only in verifiable scientific fact on this show, we scouted around for sources that fit our rigorous vetting process. And to be fair, Project Vesta does cite a swath of peer-reviewed research. But to their own admission, it was all in the lab, so they took it to the real world, which I highly applaud them for doing. We definitely need more brave individuals to do the same if we're ever going to meet targets of keeping anthropogenic global warming south of two degrees. See what I did there? 
So the paper we're going to analyze today was actually cited by Project Vesta, and it's called Potential and Costs of Carbon Dioxide Removal by Enhanced Weathering of Rocks, published 5th of March 2018, and has been cited in two further peer-reviewed papers. So let's begin with what exactly is weathering and how it works in the carbon cycle. In extremely basic terms, rock weathering is a process through which certain silicate-rich rocks break down and absorb CO2 as a small and rather slow part of the natural carbon cycle, which we've discussed on previous shows. As these silicate-rich rocks break down in the presence of water, a chemical reaction occurs on their surface, which pulls CO2 out of the air and turns into HCO3, or hydrocarbonate, or bicarbonate. These, when washed into the ocean, are used by organisms to produce both shells and coral. The remaining bicarbonate in turn combines with sodium to create sodium bicarbonate, which actively reduces ocean acidification. Now, enhanced weathering is a process by which rock is ground up by us humans and distributed to speed up the natural process. So now you've got the basics, but you're probably going, why the hell does it have to be green? I mean, if we're being honest, since we're manufacturing it, why can't we just make it a nice shade of blue as it would make for a much prettier beach than some drab olive green? Well, as we mentioned earlier, the mineral used and most widely studied is olivine. The reason for this is olivine just so happens to be the fastest weathering of any major silicate rock. So where do we get olivine from? Well, actually, we wouldn't be spreading pure olivine. Rather, we would be spreading a common igneous rock called dunite, which is approximately 90% olivine that's magnesium-rich. The downside? Dunite also contains forsterite sometimes called white olivine, which in turn contains trace amounts of both nickel and chromium, two things we don't want to actively introduce into the environment. Our paper today is pretty fascinating as it looks not only at the feasibility of dunite, but additionally it looks at basalt, a much more common rock globally that doesn't contain the harmful trace elements in dunite and additionally contains the beneficial elements of phosphorus magnesium like olivine and calcium, which would act as a mineral fertilizer if applied to cropland. Now you might be asking if that's the case, why would you consider olivine over basalt? The reason there lies in the weathering process. One ton of dunite removes approximately 1.1 tons of CO2 from the atmosphere, where basalt only removes approximately 0.3 tons of CO2 per ton of rock. Now, the paper further dives into the economics of it, so for that we'll slow our geology lesson down for the day and move more into the business side of things. To start things off, let's evaluate the process, and to do this, the paper identified five steps, namely mining, crushing, grinding, transportation, and dissemination, and it evaluated the cost and energy input of each. A side note, it did not, however, calculate in carbon emissions created in the process to find a net beneficial value. Just keep that in mind. With any problem like this, you quickly have to answer the question of where? While the folks at Project Vesta are looking at direct ocean dissemination, which we'll discuss in a minute, this paper took a different approach and looked at cropland dissemination. Why? Well, because of the magnesium in both dunite and basalt, there is a positive externality of mineral fertilization and a distinct practicality. In addition to cropland, beaches, and shallow ocean shelves, forest and pastures are options as well. 
but we're back to the practicality bit unless you want to wander through the forest like some rock-dropping version of Johnny Appleseed. So now we get to which croplands? Where are they? Are some better than others? The answer starts with the fact that for enhanced weathering to work, as we discussed earlier, water is needed for the chemical reaction. Additionally, temperature and pH of the soil are major factors. Temperature so much so that there is a threefold weathering increase when moving from temperate to warm regions. In addition to temperature, the region needs consistent rain throughout the year. Now, for full transparency, the study did not look at soil with high CO2 concentrations already in it, nor did it look at the biotic soil process, despite the fact that both exert a far from insignificant influence. So, more study is definitely needed here. That said, the best cropland falls in the majority of Central and South America, a narrow band in Sub-Saharan Africa, almost all of Eastern India, as well as Southeast Asia. With this in mind, the paper identified that approximately 50% of the world's croplands are usable, taking into account access and drainage to the oceans as well. This equates to 5.1 million square kilometers in warm regions and 2.8 million square kilometers in temperate regions. As we discussed early on, both dunite and basalt are common, and while basalt is much more common, there is a fair enough distribution of both that mining locations wouldn't be an issue. It also identified that mining and crushing cost showed to be almost insignificant in the calculations, so we'll move on to the grinding aspect. As common sense dictates, the finer you grind the two rocks, the more surface area you create. Now, every study we looked at assumed a perfectly symmetrical surface for ease of calculation. But in reality, while it wouldn't throw the numbers off significantly, the surface area, even when ground to a consistent size, is not going to be perfectly uniform. Now, in the grinding process, the paper used four sizes to evaluate feasibility. Those are 50 micrometers or microns, 20 microns, 10 microns, and 2 microns. If you're having a hard time visualizing this, know that 50 microns is about half the width of a human hair, and 10 microns is the width of the average spider's silk. So think about trying to look at that end on. As you can well imagine, the economics play hard into this process. In fact, the difference in energy demand between grinding our rock to 2 microns uses slightly more than 42 times the amount of energy required to grind to 50 microns. Now, I could rattle off the gigajoules required, but let's be honest, that's hard for most of us to visualize. Instead, know that one barrel of oil could be used to grind 87 tons of rock at 50 microns, or 2 tons of rock at 2 microns. Significant, right? The paper went on to determine that 24 micron basalt had the same weathering rate as 256 micron dunite. They looked at this as the size needed when spread across the aforementioned cropland to pull 4 gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere per year. The paper claimed, quote, this is the amount of CDR, carbon dioxide removal, would be sufficient to offset emissions from the industry sector in 2050 that remain despite an ambitious climate policy, end quote. 
Now, this is where you have to be super careful. While we found this paper to be solid science with reasonable assumptions, this one statement we could not independently verify despite looking at the cited source. Rather, this stuck out as an interpretation by the authors made based off of accurate information. I mention this not to point out a shortcoming, rather to say to you that you have to pay close attention when reading these papers to what is verifiable and what is not. Now, extrapolate that kind of comment five-fold and you see why we found it south of two degrees. Because by the time you get this on the newsfeed on your iPhone, it's pretty washed out. All that said, were they wrong about the amount of reduction? No. Does it make it less significant? No. Rather, it's just an analogy that's slightly off. What I can tell you is that according to the IPCC AR5 Working Group 3, All OECD 1990 countries, which is 37 member countries, including all of North America, Europe, Australia, Japan, and Korea, amongst a lot of others, emitted 3.7 gigatons of CO2 in just their industry sector alone in 2010. Okay, so after all that, the question likely on your mind is, that's great, Brian, but is this actually feasible? Well, What they found as optimal focused on the 20 micron size, and to sequester one gigaton of CO2 would require more than three gigatons of basalt. Insane? Will never work? Nope. Actually, global coal production is around eight gigatons per annum. Now, what would it pull out if we spread all that rock over our cropland at 20 microns? Well, For Dunite, it would pull out a whopping 95 gigatons of CO2 per year. 95 gigatons. So now you're like, okay, that's awesome. What is it going to cost all in? It all boils down to about US $60 per ton of CO2 if using Dunite. For basalt, it's significantly higher at $200 per ton of CO2, but that does not include a reduction in cost due to the steep reduction in fertilizer needs, which could potentially offset a fair amount. To put this in perspective against other climate change mitigation systems, afforestation or planting trees where there weren't any comes in at about $24 per ton of CO2 removed from the atmosphere. Bex, on the other hand, or bioengineering with carbon capture and storage, enters in at around the $36 mark, while direct air capture tops systems off between $430 to $570 per ton of CO2 removed, and those are in U.S. dollars. Finally, the paper leaves off with the fact that rock and water contact is key and needs further study is that water needs to make it all the way to the ocean for the full cycle effect, which brings us right back around to the green sand beach that you stumbled across on your fictitious Caribbean holiday. And if you really are in the islands right now on holiday, we're no longer friends. Now, Project Vesta does hold promise. While their choice of using beaches in shallow sea shelves where you have turbulent water action mitigates the final worry of the paper we looked at, it also forgoes the potential upside of mineral fertilization on croplands. Further, their claim to potentially mitigate all anthropogenic CO2 emissions we believe may be a slightly broad reach. But in this day and age, you have to capture attention to gain funding, and you have to have funding to prove that a system works. So we definitely don't hold this against them. 
That said, it is an open source project, so all scientists are welcome to contribute, and I applaud them immensely for taking this extremely sound and viable theory out of the lab and into the real world. We will absolutely be watching this area for more research as well as Project Vesta with some interest, and we'll absolutely keep you updated. Who knows, maybe we'll be broadcasting from a green beach sometime soon mainly because I think that would sure beat the hell out of being on lockdown since March. And that wraps up our slightly different episode of South of Two Degrees this week. I truly hope you enjoyed it, gained something from it, and I look forward to having you back again with me next week. Until then, stay safe, and aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.